0: Speak, Father. Your servants are listening. God, help us. We need your help to see the beauty and the calling of marriage for some, as well as the difficulties and the pain that marriage brings. God, help us to see your redeeming hand in all of it. Help us to live out this calling with faithful love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen
1: it is wonderful to be with you in person um, this morning i am hannah and um if you don't know me i live in roanoke virginia i'm married to nathan Uh, we've been married this year for 20 years and we have thank you and we have three kids um, from 17 to 12. um and i want to say this before we get into uh, the teaching this morning my husband and i started our ministry together in children's church, in children's work. And I got to say, maybe it's just me, but there's not much more uh, that I find romantic than a young man trying to explain justification to five-year-olds. So that's my plug. If you're in the first years of your marriage, jump into children's ministry. You will learn a ton about each other and set a life of goodness together. So, we are coming back to our conversation this morning in 1 Corinthians 7. Now last week, if you were able to view or be with the, um, the conversation last week, we were talking about singleness. And we were talking about how singleness is a vocation, a singularity of focus, being freed from certain cares in this world. Um, to be able to focus your attention prophetically on this coming age, on the things of the Lord. Now, we're coming back to the exact same passage um, because what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 7 is he's actually speaking of marriage and singleness in tandem, okay? He is comparing and contrasting these two vocations all through this chapter. Now, he's not doing this necessarily to point to one being better than the other. He's just showing how these different vocations play out differently and how different members in the church would be called to different ones. Each one has its own set of gifts. Each one has its own set of challenges. And so he wants to help the believers discern or discover God's calling on their life. That is part of what we've been talking about with vocation this whole time, that we are in process of learning what God is providentially putting together for us, the good works that we will walk into. But to do this, when he comes to this chapter, he's very, very practical. He's, he's answering questions that have come up in the church. And so this chapter has a very um, kitchen table feel to it. Like you're just sitting around and you're asking questions to an older member who's lived longer in life and has wisdom. And so a lot of the practical questions that he deals with are things like uh, the role of physical intimacy in marriage, how to respond to difficult marriages, particularly if you're married to an unbeliever, um, how, how marriage is a good thing, but it can also be a pretty difficult thing. And because of the shape of this chapter and because of the shape of Paul's conversation, it is decidedly prosaic. It's very earthy, it's very mundane, and quite frankly, it's unromantic. It is just is nuts and bolts. And so he doesn't talk about things like compatibility He doesn't talk about finding your five love languages or being soulmates. And pretty much everything he says would make a terrible post on Instagram. Listen to some of the things that he says. In verse 7, remember Paul's single. I wish all people were as I am. Like try hashtagging that, right? Here's another one, verse 28. If you do get married, you haven't sinned. Okay, good to know after 20 years of being married, but such people will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Or this one. A widow is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord, but she is happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion. Now, this is verse 40. So if you came this morning and you knew we were going to talk about marriage and the vocation of marriage, and you came with a whole set of hopes for a, a romantic candlelight steak dinner. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 is more like Tuesday meatloaf at grandma's house. All right, so it's the same composition, it's both beef, but it's arranged a little differently and is going to do something different for us this morning. So let's consider why is Paul being so mundane in this chapter? Because we know in other places he writes very gloriously about marriage. He talks about the beauty of marriage in Ephesians 5. But when we come to 1 Corinthians 7, he's, like I said, he's very earthy, very mundane. And he keeps saying this one phrase over and over throughout the text. He keeps talking about something about the Lord. This is not I, this is the Lord, what the Lord is saying. And so he's assuming that the Lord, that Jesus Christ, has given a certain vision of marriage that they need to remember. And for us today, as we come to this passage, we need to remember that too. Because a lot of times our understanding of marriage and our vision of marriage does not align with Jesus' vision of marriage. And so if we're going to come to this passage and understand what Paul is saying, We need to come with that understanding. Where do we find what the Lord says about marriage? Well, we find it in Matthew 19. Listen to what the Lord says about marriage. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, a lot of times we may hear that passage preached in terms of divorce. We don't divorce because God has put something together. But there's actually a deeper logic here that goes beyond just questions of divorce, that actually goes to what is a marriage. And surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, The way that both the Lord thinks about marriage and Paul is talking about marriage aligns very closely with our working definition of vocation. That marriage is not just a a relationship that we pick, it's something we're called into. Remember how we have defined vocation. God calls us through the particular details of our life to ways of loving him and loving others. So, vocation is a calling into a particular life for the purpose of loving God and loving other people. If we apply that definition to marriage, you could think of marriage as something like this, God calling together a man and woman in a faithful covenant partnership for the purpose of loving him and loving others through that partnership. You, you see those categories in Matthew 19. You hear what God has joined together, what he has called people into. They will be joined. They will be in a faithful covenant partnership. And there's a reason for this. So as we begin to think this way this morning, if we process this, there are three things that we really need to grasp about what the vocation of marriage is. First, God calls us into it. It is not something we create or even something we choose for ourselves in a way. Yes, we discover it. As Proverbs says, he who finds a good wife finds a good thing. We are part of the process of discovery and discernment, and there is agency there. But ultimately, God is doing something in his providence. Now, I I don't know how many of you had a chance to uh, read through Turning of Days, but those of you who did know that one of my first essays in the spring section was basically an essay about God's providence bringing me and my husband together through a shared love of tree frogs. Now, if you haven't read it, I'll just give that to you and you can go read it. But there is a providence at work in our lives, and this is the basis of 1 Corinthians. You see Paul saying things like, each person has his own gift from God. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. And this verse, in verse 17, let each one live his life in the situation the Lord has assigned when God called him. So there is this understanding that God is superseding providentially even in our coming together in partnerships. And it's precisely because God is putting something together that we must build into it god is at work doing something and our response to that work is to faithfully build into it into the partnership and that's why when paul comes to application within first corinthians 7 he's calling the believers whatever you can do build into this partnership don't leave it if it depends on you don't try to get out of it don't neglect it build into it. You see this in uh, verses 10 through 16 in questions about divorce. You see it in the beginning of the chapter where he talks about physical intimacy, and the logic underneath is God is doing something in your marriage, so build into it insofar as it's possible on you. Be a faithful spouse. And, and that's striking when you remember that Jesus' vision of marriage in Matthew 19 was given directly because people weren't building into their marriages, that they were trying to leave them at any, in any way they could. And, and Jesus comes along, no, God has joined together. God is doing something. There's something beautiful and good you are called to as a couple, so build into that. What is God doing then? What is he doing through marriage? He's doing the same thing he's done in all of the other vocations that we've talked to. Marriage is a different shape than singleness, but it has the same goal. And that goal is that you would be able to love him and love others better because of this partnership that in some way your ability to live out the gospel would be made more effective because you are in union and partnership with this other person and that means that marriage is a great source of joy and satisfaction and fulfillment but it has purposes beyond itself just like singleness does and so As we come to think about these things as parallel vocations, we also have to remember this. There's an irony that we are learning this from a text that Paul is addressing problems in marriage. So his underlying vision for marriage is grand and glorious and this partnership we're called into, but he explains it in context of all of these issues. Things like adultery. Things like a spouse wanting to leave things like sexual immorality within the church and the irony is that even though marriage is good and beautiful and we are called into it like every other vocation it has been affected by the curse and like every other vocation we carry our sin into it and like every other vocation it needs to be redeemed
0: So, one of the things that I love about Paul in all of his writings, but especially here in 1 Corinthians 7, is that he's such a realist, right? Like he can write about these glorious truths, but he can be so honest and so realistic about the pain and the struggles. He builds off of Jesus' teaching that marriage is good, it's, it's a God thing, so it's a good thing. But he also doesn't shy away from acknowledging how painful it can be, how difficult it can be to live out this vocation in the shadows of the curse of sin. While we're waiting for the kingdom of God to be fully realized, Jesus has come into the world, he's lived a perfect life, he's died, he's risen from the dead, and yet we're still in this tension of the already and the not yet. And so while we wait, Paul says, there are pressures on the vocation of marriage that make it hard to have a healthy marriage, to make it hard to live out our calling without distraction and anxiety and, and brokenness. He talks here in this passage throughout 1 Corinthians 7 about internal pressures, And he talks about kind of external or social pressures that they were facing and that we are still facing now. He mentions some internal pressures, right? Like there's going to be a tendency for us to struggle with sinful, selfish desires in the context of marriage. Just like in singleness, you're tempted to indulge your singleness, you are tempted in marriage to also indulge your sinfulness. He talks about the pressure uh, to to become an ascetic, right? Like verse 1. This idea that um, if you're a Christian, you can kind of over-spiritualize uh, your marriage, over-spiritualize your body, and you can want to kind of get away from uh, your marital commitments, your body, uh, embodied commitments, and just give yourself to God and, and really focus on Bible study and prayer and worship and serving the Lord while neglecting your spouse. And Paul says, don't, don't do that. It, it still matters what you do with your body. He he talks about the temptations, the pressure to sexual sin. He uses this word pornea, right, which is a word that we're all familiar with now. But it really, in that time, just was kind of a junk drawer word uh, that meant any kind of seeking of sexual satisfaction outside of a marriage partnership between a man and a woman. He said you're going to be tempted to use your bodies uh, in ways that don't honor the Lord. You're going to be tempted to weaponize your body um, through, he talks about withdrawal, through coercion through manipulation to try to use your body in a battle against your spouse. Rather than seeking to please your spouse, you use it to indulge your own flesh. Paul says in verse 33, um, it, when you're married, you're going to be tempted to be pre, become preoccupied with pleasing your spouse. For some of us, there's going to be this temptation to be overly concerned about uh, meeting the other person's needs in ways that can become kind of compulsive and unhealthy. Verse 10, he mentions the pressure to just despair when when marriage gets hard, right? And you get past the honeymoon phase to just despair, to leave your marriage when it's not fulfilling enough. And then in verse 5, Paul says all of this is kind of animated by spiritual warfare, right? Like all of this metastasizes under demonic influence. Satan is at work trying to tempt us, trying to use these differences to divide us. And so there's all of these internal pressures that we face in our marriages every day. But there's also external pressures on us, right? Like we live in a world where there are social arrangements. We've talked about this through all the vocations. There are social arrangements and expectations placed on us that are outside of our control that make marriage difficult. Paul talks in this passage about this worldly uh, that's passing away that word is schema or like a blueprint like these institutions like marriage in a jewish and greco-roman subculture he says it's it's passing away but we have to live within these institutions with their practices and their norms and their expectations that are foisted upon us as we try to live out our marital calling paul is writing to men and women who were considering leaving their marriages Because the cultural practices of marriage were putting, partly, putting pressure on them to conform to a certain way of doing marriage. You had people that were becoming Christians. Lots of women in this time were becoming followers of Jesus. And they found themselves in a marriage now with a pagan Roman male leading their house. Or you had two Christians who became believers together. And they were trying to unlearn these habits and practices of their Greco-Roman upbringing. And trying to learn the way of Jesus, how do we live this out? And so the challenges were, were many to, to try to be married in this time, right? Traditional on the ancient cultures like the Greco-Roman culture, like Judaism, they, they really, they idolized marriage. Marriage was not what we think of it now. Back then, it was a tool for social status. It was, a, it was really about stability, about the status quo. It was about achievement, right? Like marriage was one of those things that allowed you to advance your social status in an honor and shame culture. It was a business proposition, right? It was all about the enhancing of your property and your status, and it was one of the ways, primary ways, that you climbed the social ladder, that you secured heirs for yourself so you could pass on your wealth to the next generation. It's one of the ways that you preserved the social order so that a good household was reflective of a good society, And and there were just power dynamics, right? There was an asymmetrical power dynamic in a patriarchal society, right, where husbands had a lot of power. They had almost ultimate authority in their households. And many of the marriages would have been arranged, right? So you would have had maybe a 35 or 45-year-old male marrying a teenager or a young woman, right? And it would have been arranged. There would have been no choice. The home was a business to advance status. Women's bodies were legal possessions of their husbands. Divorce occurred, in most cases, when a husband declared the simple formula, take your things and leave. Now, in Greco-Roman culture, unlike Judaism, women could also initiate divorce, but it was very difficult. And then, of course, there was rampant sexual morality by men who were expected to pursue pleasure outside of their marriage. Marriage was not a place for pleasure that was expected to happen outside. There was a double standard for men and women in terms of sexual mores. So that was all kind of happening then, and you can imagine why a woman who's a Christian now, married to an, a, a pagan, would have problems remaining in that marriage. There was pressure. We don't face the same kind of pressure now, but we have our own pressure. We live in a contemporary society that doesn't look at marriage so much about like social status and stability. All that—that's part of it. Um, we live in a time where marriage is seen more in terms of self-fulfillment, right? Self-fulfillment and what some have called apocalyptic romance. We treat our marriage, as uh, Hannah said last week with our singleness, as an existential proposition, not an economic proposition, right? In the words of the famous theologian Jerry Maguire, you complete me. That's how we approach marriage. I'm looking for somebody to fulfill my deep longings and desires, and you can look no further than Instagram, right? To feel that pressure, your marriage has to be awesome. It has to be beautiful. You have to be taking all these amazing trips and you look around and you see other people and their kids have these airbrush photos and everything seems to be going really awesome for them and you look at your dull ordinary marriage with your spouse whose breath smells in the morning when you wake up and you're like is this all that it is because it doesn't seem to be what everybody else is living on Instagram and this is so difficult for us we as Christians this is the air that we breathe as we try to live out our vocation it can be destructive to get so hyper-focused on choosing the right person, choosing somebody who's compatible with me, and seeing this as an identity marker. And so under the curse, marriage becomes an idol. It can become an idol. It can become a God that enslaves us. But Paul, I think here, is inviting us to another way of approaching the vocation of marriage, not as Uh, preserving a sort of economic and social order and not as a a pursuit of self-fulfillment or apocalyptic romance. Marriage, Paul says, makes a really poor God, but can be a really beautiful gift. That's what he argues in in verse 7. Marriage, just like singleness, requires a charism, a gift from God if we can receive what Jesus is doing in the gift. With the coming of Jesus, marriage, Paul says, becomes one of the places Not the only place, but one of the places where we learn peace, we learn learn shalom, we learn about wholeness, we learn about holiness, Paul says, to be set apart for God. And Paul's using here, he's invoking the language of redemption, the language of salvation, to point us back to what Jesus came to do. And so Jesus comes partly to redeem marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul and writing about marriage, says this, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So in instructing husbands and wives how to live together under this new redemptive world order known as the kingdom of God, he, he appeals to what Jesus came to do, his redemptive work, and he says marriage is a, he literally says in the Greek, a mega-mystery right? Anybody else married? It's, it's a mega mystery. We don't understand it. It's hard. It's a, it's a hidden truth that can only be understood by God's Spirit. Paul calls it a secret that we have to kind of be initiated into. And the secret here, he says, is that husbands and wives should view marriage through the lens of what Christ has done to bring us into union with himself. Marriage, Paul says, is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people. If you go on to read the rest of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uh, Paul talks about Jesus' redemptive work for his bride. The the church is called the bride of Christ in Revelation chapter 21. One day the bride of Christ will come down. We read this at at Easter and Good Friday a few weeks ago. Prepared for her husband, beautiful and radiant. We see here Jesus' way of sacrificial love. Jesus, Paul says, is the head of the church who takes responsibility for the salvation the healing of his body he loved the church and he gave himself up for her he makes the church he makes his bride holy very similar language as we see here in first corinthians 7 jesus cleanses the church from sin and guilt and shame jesus provides and cares for his church and one day he will present his bride beautiful and radiant and spotless and completely whole and happy and holy This is the vision for Jesus's sacrificial love that brings us both individually and as a church into a deep union and communion with God. And this becomes then the pattern and the power for how we live out our vocation of marriage right now. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Paul's trying to say. If you want to know how to live out your vocation of marriage, look at what Jesus has done for his bride. Through marriage, we see the beauty. We see the depths of Jesus's sacrificial love for us as his people. We are driven deeper into reliance upon him to transform us, to make us like him. And as we experience this union, we can then become capable of giving and receiving that kind of love with one another in our marriages. That is the basis upon which we have a a hopefulness for the vocation of marriage.
1: It's that hope, I think, that we often can't see, right? A lot of times when we encounter teaching within the church, we will see this beautiful vision of Christ and his bride, and it will be very aspirational. It will call out of us something that we long for, but is it possible? And I think to to what Brandon has just shared with us, that this is possible through Christ, through the gospel, as we are changed and made new creatures, we come into a new creation life, a life that is characterized by resurrection hope. So what would it look like to live out this hope in our vocation of marriage? Practically speaking, what would hope look like? What would a uniquely Christian approach to marriage look like? Well, one thing that it looks like is this. Christians know that as beautiful and as good as marriage is, as productive and as blessed as marriage is, marriage is not our ultimate hope. It's not where we're placing our hope. It is not ultimate. As um, the text we read this morning talks about, this world is passing away. Our marriages will pass away. Unless you think this is, you know, just some minor doctrinal note. I, I, want, I, I want to share this with you. Um, my husband and I have friends who are Mormon, right? And in many ways, our marriages look very similar on this earth. They're, they're conservative, we love each other well, we try to build into our homes and our children and our families. But my Mormon friends believe in eternal marriages, in sealing that would bring their marriages into eternity. And part of the goal of this life is to get to that eternal marriage and live out that eternal marriage. And I can tell you, when after we heard that from our friends, I turned to my husband and I said, look, I love you very much, but I did not sign up for eternity and you know that because the goal is not marriage the goal is union with Christ the goal is union with everyone of his body it is not this particular one partnership that partnership becomes the means to which we achieve these others and so marriage becomes a means to an end not the end itself how is this good and hopeful well it's like there's two points one it allows you to enter back into your marriage with realistic expectations. Even the best marriage, even the most Instagrammable marriage is passing away. It will not exist in eternity. But here's something even better that I just, I, I fall back on this all the time. A marriage doesn't have to be the source of my existential fulfillment, which means it can be good to achieve God's perfect purposes. It doesn't have to be perfect to achieve God's purposes. And we can be in process. My husband and I can be still be in process 20 years later, learning these ways to be with each other, and it can be good and still fulfilling God's purposes. And so it frees you from this pressure, as Brandon mentioned, to, to have these perfect marriages. Marriage is not ultimate. It is a calling you are called into that God is using to bring about your good in his glory. But a second thing, when we recognize that marriage is not our ultimate hope, is when we're in a situation, when we're in a marriage, that the wheels come off of, and it's outside of our control. And we have done everything we can do to be faithful, building into that partnership. Because marriage is not ultimate, you are not under Bondage. This is what Paul um, speaks about within verses 10 through 16. If you read that section, it's a very detailed discussion of what to do when a marriage is hard. And one of the things he says is a brother or sister, if his unbelieving spouse leaves, is not bound in such cases. In verse 15, God has called you to peace. And so if something, if the worst happens to your marriage... You have not failed, right? Because our hope is in God. Our hope is in the work that God is doing in us and through us and through our vocation. Marriage is not our ultimate source of goodness. And it is in obeying the call of God that we live at peace.
0: All right. Some of you are now disappointed. Hannah just laid out a bummer. Your marriage is not ultimate. When you stare into each other's eyes this week and you, you know, have that poem that you wrote for each other, you know, it's like, hey, I love you so much, but it's not ultimate, right? Like, I know that's gonna be a bummer and that's gonna be a letdown for some of you this week. Maybe for others of you, you're like, thank God. Thank God that somebody finally said it because I look around and my marriage doesn't seem to fit the cultural script. And and so there is an encouragement there for us. But there's also this invitation, not just to, to see that marriage is not ultimate, although it's true, it is passing away, but to build into it while we're here living in this vocation. To the best of our ability by God's grace, we're invited to the way of Jesus. To, I, I would just encourage us to apprentice ourselves. That's what it means to be a disciple, to learn the way of Jesus, to learn the way of sacrificial love is one of the primary things that God is teaching us in our marriages. What does it look like to be a disciple right, to, to pick up our cross and follow Jesus, to apprentice ourselves to his way. This is not a way that comes naturally to us, and you will find that out five minutes into your marriage, 50 uh, weeks into your marriage, that it is difficult, it's hard, and it, and it requires so much. That's why, that's why we talk about sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice. He, he lays down his life. The, the, the idea of sacrifice is it's going to be hard, and when Paul writes about Jesus's sacrificial love, he, he appeals to husbands and wives, on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. Now, treat each other as Jesus has treated you. Give yourself. Love your spouse. Trust them. Be vulnerable with them. Treat them kindly. And and this would have been so radically subversive, as it is now. In Paul's day, this was so radical, right? Because this is not a sentimental love. This is not Hallmark kind of love This is concrete, nitty-gritty, action-oriented love, giving ourselves for each other day in and day out in the ordinary stuff of life. I mean, in a patriarchal society, this would have been so bizarre. It would have been dangerous, right? Because Paul says here in the opening verses of chapter 7 that not only does a, a woman's body belong to her husband in marriage, which everybody in Corinthian culture would have known that and said, yes, a woman belongs to her husband in every way, even legally then. But what nobody would have expected Paul to say is the husband's body also belongs to his wife. That is so subversive. That sexual immorality was expected for men and not for women. There was this double standard, and Paul says, no, you be faithful to your wife. Because sexual morality, because porn is so prominent, you give yourself exclusively to your wife. Paul says. Husbands, your body is to be used to love and serve your wife. Wives, your bodies are to be used to love and serve your husband. You owe each other mutually pleasure and love and intimacy and care and sacrificial service. And just as that was subversive then, it is subversive now in our cultural moment of self-fulfillment, right? Because like Jesus, we are to put the needs and the desires of our spouse before our own, to give ourselves for the good of others when I don't feel like it, when it's not fulfilling me in the ways that I thought it would fulfill me. I'm still called. I've I've made this promise, a promise to be a certain kind of person as Jesus has been to me and as the Spirit of God lives in me. I am now committing to continue to treat you as Christ has treated me. And so the call for us is one of mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. And that is so Countercultural cultural in a moment when everybody tells you it is about how you feel, it is about your satisfaction, it is about your desires being fulfilled, and you finding all of your happiness in this marriage, in this relationship with your best friend. And I'm not saying that you can't become best friends, okay? Like, if you're 25 or 30, I know you may feel that way, and some of this stuff is just gonna have to be filed away for later, right? Like, as you get older, you're not always gonna feel the feelings that you feel right now. But we can still give ourselves for one another and find mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. And so what Paul, I think, is saying to us here in this passage is when we live in this way of sacrificial love, it can reframe how we show up in our relationships, in our marriages. When marriage is hard, and when marriage is painful, and when it's difficult and you don't feel like you want to stay, we don't despair, Paul says. We know that it's passing away. It's not ultimate. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can still have our hearts filled with God's love. And that love, that union that we experience, the communion that we have with God, allows us to handle the failures of our spouses. It allows us to handle their flaws. The more you get to know them, the more you see things that you didn't see when you got married. You're like, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah, that's marriage, right? Like, you're going to learn things. You're going to see new things through different seasons of life. And you can handle those things because the love of God lives in you because you know your own flaws and you know how God responds to you and your failures. So sometimes when marriage is hard, we stay, Paul says. We stay and we love and we keep forgiving and we keep pursuing reconciliation, even when it seems hopeless. Sometimes it means that we speak the truth in love and we prophetically challenge and we look at each other in the face and we say, this is not the way of Jesus. We should live a different way. And we differentiate ourselves even within our marriages when one spouse is not responding in the love of Christ. We stay in and we hang on. We recognize that the power of the Spirit lives in us. And Paul says, you have the potential to sanctify your marriage. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, and there's thousands of different opinions, and I don't want to get into all that this morning, but here's what I think Paul is saying. is through your faithfulness, through the faithfulness of Christ in you, Marriage becomes an opportunity for God to use you as an ambassador to make this holy, to make this whole. And so he says, you never know what can happen. Hang in there. Sometimes we're called to stay. And if you choose to stay in that difficult marriage, Paul says, you're going to have to still live as one who doesn't ultimately see this as ultimate, right? You're going to have to differentiate yourself. You're going to have to take care of yourself. You're going to have to remember that marriage is not your only calling. And there's some encouragement in there, like we said to singles last week. It's it's passing away. So it's okay to, to remember that it's not ultimate. And that may be one of the things that actually gets you through when marriage is hard. You have other callings, to be a wife, to be a mother, to be a father, to be a neighbor, to be part of a church. So marriage is not the only thing that gives your life meaning and purpose. So sometimes we stay. And Paul says sometimes we go. That's the thing we don't often like to talk about in the church. Paul says, if you leave, like sometimes it's so hard that for the sake of shalom, for the sake of your Christianity, for the sake of your peace with God and with other people, you leave. There's a time to leave. There's a time sometimes to divorce. Jesus says that sometimes our hearts get so hard that things shatter and break. God in the Old Testament actually gives us a picture in Jeremiah 3 of a time when he divorced Israel. And so I don't say that lightly, but I say sometimes we stay as an act of love and sometimes Paul says we go, but we need community to be walking with us through that as we discern God's call in our life. It's not the first option, it's not the second option, it's not the third option, it is the last option, but sometimes it is the only option. So when it's bad, Paul says you're free. When it's good, Paul says you can be grateful. Without idolizing it. In the best times, you can say, Thank you, God, for this good enough marriage. Thank you, God, for this okay marriage. Thank you, God, that I have this partner. And Paul's call throughout this passage just give yourselves to each other in sacrificial love. Give yourself wholly to each other, physically, right? Which is the whole thing about sexual intimacy. Give yourself physically and wholly to one another. Give yourself emotionally, financially, legally. Don't give yourself in one way, but not in another. Marriage is a holistic, self-giving proposition, Paul says. And so we pursue trust together. We pursue camaraderie. We team together. We protect one another. We protect the community, Paul says in our marriages. Sexual morality is a danger not just to us, but to our entire body. And so we protect one another. We team together. We help each other through healing our wounds and moving towards the salvation that God has for us. We pursue friendship. We take care of each other's needs. We love each other. And it's that that recognition that allows us to see something in what Christ is doing in our total redemption. And so as we come, as we do every week, to communion, we're just reminded through marriage that God is at work, God is about our union with him, and that marriage is one picture of that. And as we live in these marriages, we love each other, we sacrifice, we get a glimpse of the beauty of the gospel. We see Jesus laying down his life for us. We have the opportunity then to lay down in response our lives for one another, to love each other, to confess our sin, to experience forgiveness, to pursue reconciliation, to partner together at the deepest level of human intimacy possible physically, spiritually, emotionally as a picture of the day that is coming into the world. And that's what we celebrate each week in communion. It's this reminder that we have been called into these vocations, marriage, and singleness as pointers to the greater reality of Christ. And so we come again to receive his love. We come again to receive his encouragement, his partnership, his spirit in us, empowering us to live out our vocations in the midst of both the beauty and the brokenness. And so I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus here, we're going to pass out the elements here in just a second. I want to invite you, if you are sitting with your spouse, to just maybe grab their hand this morning. And let's recommit ourselves to this vision that God has for us. And I realize in saying that, there are some where there are no hands to grab. And this is a time for lament. This is a time for prayer and spiritual warfare. This is a time to continue to believe that God is using your spirit-infused presence to bring about his redemptive purposes as your spouse is maybe not here. If they are here, I want to encourage you just to grab their hand and recommit yourself to this vocation. If you're here and you're single, I want to invite you, maybe you have some single friends around or you're dating, whatever, let's recommit ourselves to the vocation of singleness. Let's be reminded that Jesus is with us in both of these vocations, that he is gifting us and empowering us to do good works in his name. And so let's take a moment to confess our sins. Let's take a moment to cry out to God for his help. Let's take a moment to acknowledge our dependency on him. The way we practice communion here at Soma, for those who are followers of Jesus, we just take a moment to pray, respond to what God is saying to us. We'll pass around some of the elements here. They'll come down. If you need gluten-free communion, uh, if you just let her know as she comes by, let them know as they come by. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd invite you not to take communion. This is a family meal to be shared by those who are trusting in Jesus. So you can just say no thanks as they come. Just hang on to it to the very end and then I'll lead us through communion and then we'll sing our last song and we'll send you back out. So let's just take a moment to pause, to respond to God, to trust in him, to respond to his invitation in our lives. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you need to put your hope and trust in him. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but you've, you've, you're have you've you just struggling and you need to confess And Whatever it is, I just want to encourage you to respond to God's invitation, to the Spirit's prompting right now. And then in just a few moments we'll take communion together.